Roald Dahl tells a very touching story of Danny. He's a boy who adores his father, and his father adores him. As a mechanic and a gas station attendant, he teaches Danny how to fix things. He teaches him about life. He's a good man. He's a good father. At night after their sparse meal, Danny's father would tell him stories, sometimes pacing, but mostly, as Danny says, he would sit close to me on the edge of my bunk and speak very softly. The big friendly giant makes his magic powders out of the dreams that children dream when they're asleep, he said. How, I asked. Tell me how, Dad. Dreams, my love are very mysterious things. They float around in the night air like little clouds searching for sleeping people. Can you see them? I asked. Nobody can see them. Then how does the big friendly giant catch them? Ah, my father said, that is the interesting part. A dream you see as it goes drifting through the night air makes a tiny little buzzing, humming sound. A sound so soft and low it is impossible for ordinary people to hear it. But the BFG can hear it easily. His sense of hearing is absolutely fantastic. I loved the far, intent look on my father's face when he was telling a story. His face was pale and still and distant, unconscious of everything around him. The BFG, he said, can hear the tread of a ladybug's footsteps as she walks across a leaf. He can hear the whisperings of ants as they scurry around in the soil talking to one another. He can hear the sudden shrill cry of a tree as the woodsman cuts into it with an axe. Ah, yes, my darling. There's a whole world of sound around us that we cannot hear because our ears simply are not sensitive enough. What happens when he catches the dreams, I asked. He imprisons them in a glass bottle and screws the tops down tight, my father said. He has thousands of bottles in his cave. Does he catch bad dreams as well as good ones? Yes, my father said. He catches both. But he only uses the good ones in his powders. What does he do with the bad ones? He explodes them. It is impossible to tell you how much I loved my father. When he was sitting close to me on my bunk, I would reach out and slide my hand into his, and he would fold his long fingers around my fist and hold it tight. What does the BFG do with his powders after he has made them, I asked? In the dead of night. My father said he goes prowling through the villages, searching for houses where children are asleep because of his great height. He can reach into windows that are one, even two flights up. And when he finds a room with a sleeping child, he opens his suitcase, his suitcase. I asked the BFG always carries a suitcase and a blowpipe. My father said the blowpipe is as long as a lamppost. His suitcase is for the powders. So he opens the suitcase and selects exactly the right powder. And he puts it in the blowpipe. And he slides the blowpipe through the window. And poof. He blows in the powder. And the powder floats around the room. And the child breathes it in. And then what, I asked. And then, Danny. The child begins to dream a marvelous and fantastic dream. And when the dream reaches its most marvelous and fantastic moment, then the magic really takes over. And suddenly the dream is not a dream any longer, but a real happening. And the child is not asleep in bed. He is fully awake and is actually in the place of the dream and is taking part in real life. But more about that tomorrow.
It's getting late. Good night, Danny. Go to sleep. We have a good father. And our father fills our world with kingdom dreams. These kingdom dreams explode the sin nightmares that shatter the goodness of our world. And for those who have seeing eyes and who have hearing ears, these kingdom dreams let us imagine the coming world where God has created all things new and beautiful and just. The new world is coming, but it is not here yet. And so we wait and we watch And we listen for kingdom dreams until suddenly the dream is not a dream any longer, but a real happening. And we are not asleep in bed. We are fully awake and are actually in the place of the dream and are taking part in real life. Would you pray with me? God, we bow before you. First of all, to know That you love us. And I ask that you would remind us again. That we might trust you. We pray God for eyes to see. And we pray for ears to hear the kingdom dreams. That you have filled our world with. And finally oh God we pray for the courage. To live them out. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Kelly asked me to talk about the attitudinal and behavioral ethos of the church. Sounds like Kelly. You guys miss him? Yeah, me too. Which is to say he's asked me to preach the entire New Testament. So I think I can probably get us out of here in about 15 minutes. Nope, that's a lie. I can get us out of here by about 1225 on Wednesday. <laughs> Next week. <laughs> Okay, so I'm not going to preach the whole New Testament, but for me, there's some passages of Scripture that weigh a lot heavier in my thoughts and in my heart than others. And for me, maybe the heaviest part of Scripture, in terms of its gravity and its center uh, of, for me in understanding Jesus and the heart of God and these kingdom dreams, is the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to find in Matthew chapters 5 to 7. The Sermon on the Mount is such a challenge that followers of Jesus have debated and wrestled its meaning for centuries. The kingdom dream of Jesus is here is maybe the most comprehensive and practical sermon he ever preached. It is also one of the most hotly debated. And I would submit to you this morning that that's the problem. It's been debated, been debated more than it's been followed. Through history, there's been five broad ways of understanding this teaching of Jesus. Some of the earliest Christian documents use language that's right out of the Sermon on the Mount and suggests we can do this. We can live the Sermon on the Mount. But sometime around the 4th century, as a lot of the Roman Empire converted to Christianity and there was a more formal distinction between clergy and laity, it became understood that church leaders can do this, but regular folk can't. And then we eventually started to realize that, in fact, it's too hard for anyone to practice, and to try to do so just leads to legalism. And then Martin Luther had this brilliant insight that these teachings are indeed too hard. We can't follow them. And they just show us how much we need God's grace. 
Keeping the laws literally is not the point. But there's been a movement as of late that comes back to this position that says, yes, the teachings are too hard. But by God's blessing and grace, we must try to keep them. And it sounds a lot like option number one. The only problem with the middle three options is that Jesus just doesn't agree. He ends the Sermon on the Mount with these words, if you want to follow along in chapter 7, verse 24 and following. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. And what is striking to me about these final words of Jesus in this sermon is it has no emphasis on understanding and all the emphasis on doing. It's not a body of material to be cognitively mastered. It's a life to be lived. At least that's what Jesus thinks. And so right here at the very start, we need to decide how are we going to read this sermon. If we read it as an impossibly high ideal and say, those are really good ideas, but we really can't do it. Then we'll get only one view of the sermon. We'll get one truth about grace. And to be fair, it is a profound thought about grace. But if we take Jesus' words seriously, and I would submit to you this is a good idea, it's not what Jesus intended. If we look at the sermon and we say, this is the way life is, as Jesus intended it, and he actually calls us to live this life, then we read it in a very different way. And the good news is Jesus says you can. He wouldn't invite you into something only to have you fall flat on your face. Jesus thinks you can do it. And so the good news here, or the question here, is how are you going to read the Sermon on the Mount? The question is, will I do what Jesus says? Will I try to live this out? It's not only a life that should be lived. It is a life that can be lived. At least that's Jesus' opinion. But we can't get to this end of following Jesus without knowing the beginning of Jesus' blessing. This is critical. If you miss everything else today, you need to catch this if you want to do anything meaningful with the Sermon on the Mount in your life. We cannot get to the end of following Jesus if we don't start with his blessing. Jesus knows that we can't follow him. We can't follow him without his blessing. And so I want you, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, to notice where Jesus is. He saw the crowds and Jesus went up a mountainside. Jesus is in the countryside near Capernaum. He's up on a mountainside. Notice who Jesus is with. Crowds. Crowds that if we look just a little bit earlier in the text of Matthew, we discover are people who are sick and who are diseased, who are demon-possessed and marginalized, who are looking for healing, who are looking for deliverance, who are looking for hope. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth are these. Blessed are. 
Now, we tend to hear these as commands, but these are not commands. These are blessings that Jesus is pronouncing. It's not an instruction. Those will come later. What Jesus talks about here is a blessing because Jesus knows that without his blessing, we can't follow the world that he dreams for us. Notice again who Jesus is with. These are not the religious elite with pen and paper in hand attending a seminar at an air-conditioned desert retreat. These are peasants, Jewish peasants, say Jewish crowd, living in a land under military occupation. They're working peasants with thick calluses on their hands, and many of them poor in spite of the hours they put in. These are marginalized crowds who have been cast out from the center of society. They're looking for restoration. These are people who need a blessing, and so blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says. The poor in spirit here is a loaded term that refers back to a Hebrew word, the anawim. We need to remember that the nation of Israel was hauled into exile at one point, but not everyone was taken into exile. The enemies of Israel took into exile only those who were useful. If you weren't useful, you got left behind. You've not been properly insulted until the enemy says, we're going to haul off everybody who is useful, but we're not going to take you. There's a word for these people. The anawim. The pathetic. The pitiful. The worthless. Most of us will have anawim moments in our lives. Randy Harris, a friend and professor at ACU, a friend of mine who is probably the reason I have fallen so in love with the Sermon on the Mount shares this story about his college intramural softball team experience. They played 10 on the field, but they had to draft 12, and they just rotate the bench if everyone showed up. But as you know, students are notoriously inconsistent, and so when they couldn't make it, for absolutely good reasons, then they'd still have enough to field a team. So one night, Randy's sitting on the bench, and he notices there are only nine players on the field, and he's sitting on the bench. And as he tells it, you haven't been properly insulted until your team says, we would prefer to play shorthanded than have you out here with us. We'd prefer to have you on the bench. Anawim. These are more than just embarrassing moments at the party. These are times when you feel really rejected. Overachievers rejected by parents when they turn in less than flawless report cards. Those who have felt the sting of a spouse's unfaithfulness. In nearly every time and culture, the poor know exactly what it's like to be anawim. You feel rejected, hopeless, and alone. The crowd who came to hear the Sermon on the Mount that day were anawim. And the first words out of Jesus' mouth, blessed are the anawim. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are merciful, who are pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who are insulted and persecuted because of righteousness, because God's got you in those places. Jesus is not saying be poor, be humble, be meek. Be peacemakers. He's saying, blessed are you when you find yourself in those places because God is there 
as well. And right from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, I'm not talking to you about the world as you have known it. I'm talking to you about the world as God sees it. And when we look at Canada and we look at the United States and we look at Calgary and what it is to have the blessed life, the good life, we've been told that all good life is having the stuff you want. That the good life is having the perfect family. The good life is being able to retire early. The good life is having security. And Jesus from the get-go says, no. The blessed life is knowing that God loves you. And you're in God's hands. And this is an incredible revelation. Because without receiving God's blessing. Without first receiving this blessing, it is impossible, not difficult, it is impossible to live the life that Jesus will call us to. Because you'll just be attempting to win God's favor by keeping a set of arbitrary commands. You'll be trying to make yourself loved instead of doing it out of a response to the love that God has already given you. We need to hear these words, church. You are, before you took your first breath, blessed. God loves you before you ever looked at him. Before you had consciousness, God loved you. And that's where we start our life. And that's where we end our life. And until we get that, we can't do anything else with the commands Jesus will give to us. God's got you. Jesus' blessing is that the good life is found in unexpected places. Places of mourning and rejection persecution, and even poverty, because God's love is what produces good life. Only once we've heard and received God's blessing can we start to hear and obey God's laws. Because in the hands of a loving God, and only in the hands of a loving God, can we hear and live Jesus' commands in this kingdom dream he's going to lay out for us. Jesus is going to say, Several times. You have heard that it was said and lay out a law. But I tell you, and he'll talk about a new law. Six times to be exact, he's going to use this phrase. But we have to be careful. We don't confuse the contrast being drawn here. Because Jesus isn't saying, it's me against the Old Testament. It's me against the law. You've heard that it was said the law, but I'm abolishing that. I'm actually going to move ahead and give you a new law. That's not what Jesus is doing. As a matter of fact, moments ago, Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law. Jesus loves the law. Remember where he's found as a boy in the temple? Debating law, he loves the law of God. Whoever practices and teaches these commands, Jesus says, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. But this is the contrast he is after. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And so we see it's not Jesus versus the law. It is Jesus' interpretation of the law Versus the Pharisees' interpretation of the law. The Pharisees who were rule keepers to a T. And no more, no less. Jesus shows us, however, that loving God is not about keeping rules. We can't earn God's love or respect by keeping rules. It's not doable because you already have his love. It's about reflecting a deep inner goodness of God's character and being in one's everyday life. 
You've heard that it was said, Jesus will say to the people long ago, do not murder and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. I don't know about you guys. I haven't murdered anyone today. There's even a pretty good chance I'm going to get through the day without murdering anyone. But Jesus says, I don't want to talk about murder. I want to talk about anger. Huh. It's about anger because that's where murder starts. Roberto Bolaño wrote a novel called 2666, and it tells the horrific tale of 20 years of murders, rapes, and torturing young women. That part of the book is true. It occurred in an area of Mexico, and the crime was never solved for 20 years. At one point in the book, some detectives who are supposed to be working on the case are sitting in a bar and telling what, for lack of a better term, we might call blonde jokes. They're making fun of women. And Bologna wants us to see a key point. These jokes and these murders have something in common. It begins with disrespect for women and it ends in murder. And then Jesus contrasts a pair of words here that really start to get to the heart of the matter. Anyone who says raka is accountable to the Sanhedrin, but anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell, Jesus says. Anyone who says raka, anyone who says idiot, moron, imbecile, may get a slap on the wrist, might get a couple raised eyebrows. But the one who says fool, that is the one who says... Well, I can't actually translate that one because I'd have to use words this morning that would derail everything that we've done up to this point. To say fool is to say words you don't say when kids are in the room. It's the kind of profanity that cuts to the essence of a person's worth about where they come from, their lineage. Angry words that chop down, that demean, that tear down, that call into question the very worth of another person. And so Jesus says, Jesus says, here's how seriously I take this. If you're on your way to worship and there's a rift between you and a brother and sister, you forget about worship and you go make it right with your brother and sister. Because there is nothing you can do in worship that is more important than being reconciled to your brother and sister. There is nothing in worship you can offer God that is more important than being reconciled with a brother and sister with whom you've had a rift. Jesus doesn't even care who started it. That's a child's game. Jesus says, you like to play worship, but I could care less if things are out of whack over here. That's how seriously... He takes it. I think it'd be fair to say that in our world we've become experts at sarcasm and insults, trash talking. It's on Facebook and Twitter, text messages and phone calls, billboards. We've been we've been indoctrinated by our TV to say, that's the best, highest form of humor. Let me tear you to shreds. And only one of those two people walk away laughing. Jesus says that relationships governed by respect and reconciliation and love are far more important than anything we could possibly do in worship. We are pretty good at not murdering. Jesus says, 
How's your anger? Will you live into Jesus' command and elevate reconciliation above worship? Would you get up right now and leave the room to be reconciled? And then return and offer this gift of worship. Man, there's a ton of stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And so if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because it's better to show up to heaven maimed than it is to go to hell whole. And if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Because it's better to show up in heaven maimed than it is to go to hell whole. And I'm convinced Jesus is using some over-the-top language here. This is why. He's making a very serious point, don't get me wrong. Ed Dobson, in a book called A Year of Living Like Jesus, tells a story about a student who came up to him after he made a lecture in Florida. The young man had one eye. And he said he actually took Jesus' statement to pluck out his eye, quite literally. He poked out his eye because he was lusting. Dobson stood dumbfounded, unable to believe he had truly met someone who had done what Jesus said in this area of lust. But that's when the young man said something he would never forget, and I don't want you to miss it. He said he followed what Jesus said. He plucked out his eye. But now he's still tempted to lust with one eye. You see, we can't start from the outside in, and that's why you need God's blessing first. If we could start from the outside in and shape people who are good and who are kind, Canada would be a lot better than it already is. Because we have lots of laws in place to say, don't be a jerk. You can't steal, and you can't murder, and you can't commit fraud. There's a whole bunch of laws around that, but it doesn't stop it from happening, does it? Laws can't create the dream that Jesus is talking about here. It starts in here. And so ripping out your eye or chopping off your hand is not going to fix what's in here. But Jesus says you need to take it so seriously. You need to take it so seriously. Let me give you this gross image. So here's an idea for you. Why don't you gouge out from your diet all forms of media, computer, television, and movies that tend to feature lust? I know, that's like 98% of what's out there. It's tough to live the life that Jesus called us to if we believe what our world feeds us. Here's another idea, and this is a tough one I've discovered in uh, aviation. Cut out all sexually suggestive humor or language from your speech. Just walk away when it's used. Turns out it's about the only language and only imagination everybody I've met in aviation has. This would make for a very quiet ride. Would you cut it out? Would you rip it out? Will we follow Jesus? Again, you've heard it said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but keep the oaths you've made to the Lord. Do not swear at all either by heaven or Jerusalem or the earth. Simply let your yes be yes and your no be no. And the reality is, church, that if we talk about this, Jesus is saying, be people of integrity. For most of us, if the cost is high enough, our integrity is probably for sale. But if we go through the rest of our lives deciding whether or not we're going to tell the truth based on a cost-benefit analysis, we're going to lie a lot. 
Anybody can have integrity when it leads towards success. Jesus' question is, will you have integrity when it leads to the cross? At some point, we have to decide, are we going to tell the truth? Because we're followers of Jesus, regardless of the cost. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Right on the heels of telling us about revenge and violent reaction not being the way of this kingdom dream, Jesus tells us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. Everybody in the world loves their own family. They love their own team. They love the folks who are like them. Everybody does that. So if you're doing that, congratulations, you're on par with the world. In the kingdom of Jesus, in the dream of Jesus that he lays before us, he says we love people who are not like us, who don't talk like us, who don't dress like us, who don't smell like us, who aggravate us, who get under our skin, who might actually be our enemies. Because in the kingdom, God loves everyone and we're to reflect his love. If we love the things that Jesus loves and hate the things that Jesus hates, We hate all kind of war and violence. We hate all kinds of conflict. But we love the people on every side of it. And the reality is that we probably don't have a whole lot of enemies. Probably don't have a whole lot of enemies, but I bet you you've got irritants. You might be married to one. Oh yeah, I just stirred that pot. And guess what Jesus says? You love the irritants because that's the way it is in the kingdom. Jesus commands here about a deeper obedience to the law. Start to begin to, to paint this picture of a kingdom life. It's a life that is held close to the heart of God and that walks to the beat of God's drum. And so what we find at the end of the Jesus sermon is what we started with at the beginning of my sermon. Jesus' scorecard for life. It's haunting and it's disconcerting and we have to hear it because it's Jesus' words to reorient our whole life to him. Watch out for false prophets, Jesus says in chapter 7 and 15. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. Okay, I kind of get that. I kill everything I touch when it comes to plants, but I get this. Every tree, or sorry, a good tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. We all know people who are hypocrites, who say and do things in the name of Jesus that are totally off kilter with the heart of Jesus. And it's a bad rap for everyone. It's bad for the church and it's bad for the world. That part doesn't surprise me. I'm actually pretty okay with that. It's this next little bit that really starts to cut to it. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's the second group that haunts me. 
They were prophesying and driving out demons and performing miracles in the name of Jesus. And he says, I never knew you. It's chilling. It's sobering. Maybe they were hypocrites and they just didn't know it. Or maybe they thought they were believers, but they had lost track of what Jesus thought was really important. And Jesus tells us how to avoid these words when we come to our end. It's keep score the way Jesus keeps score. Look at fruit. Good trees bear good fruit and bad trees bear bad fruit. You don't plant quality seed and nurture it and and, uh, get uh, a bad fruit off of that tree or a different kind of fruit. You don't get grapes from thorn bushes. Jesus here is talking about how to keep score I'd be super impressed, quite frankly, if you drove out demons and you prophesied and did miracles in the name of Jesus. I'd be crazy impressed. But Jesus, aren't you impressed with my academic credentials? Aren't you impressed with all the sermons I've preached? Jesus, the worship services that I've led and the prayers that I've prayed and the stuff and the money I've given away, Jesus. And he says, I never knew you. Because he's keeping score differently. All the spiritual stuff that I've done, all the church stuff I've done, all the good works I think I've done, Jesus says, I never really knew you. What I was interested in is you living a life free of materialism and full of integrity and love. What I wanted was a life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' bottom line. What if I spent my life caring about things that Jesus could really care less about? When all he wanted from me was a life formed according to the cross. A life lived according to the Sermon on the Mount. It's tall order. The difficult words. It's life that can be lived. And that Jesus invites you to live. He's given you his blessing. So the question. Will you try? Try.